Well, hello again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here. We're continuing our journey together through the book of James. If you want to turn there in your own Bibles, we'll be in James chapter 3, looking at verses 13 through 18. It's also printed for you on page 10 of your bulletin there in the ESV translation. We've also provided a version for the kids as well. And just to remind you, uh, newcomers here today, we would certainly love to get to know you. If you would like to um, scan that QR code on the back and get to know us, we'd love to see that. Also, down here um, after the service, I'll hang out. I'd love to meet you and get to know more about you and hear your story if you'd like to do that as well. Um, so as we get into James this morning, I kind of want to give you a, a little intro before we get to the text. You know, I want you to think back way, way back for some of you. I want you think about elementary school. Okay, so elementary school. I don't know if they still do this. I got report cards from my kids this summer. I should have looked. I didn't, so I'll just go with it. Um, do they still do conduct grades? Remember conduct grades? Right? How many of you remember like conduct grades in elementary school, right? Yeah, yeah. In some households, you know, the conduct grade didn't count that much. It's no big deal. But in my household, I remember growing up, my parents, the conduct grade counted, right? That was just as important to get, as getting good grades. If you got unsatisfactory, if you got that U, oh man, that was, you were in trouble in my house. And that's kind of where we are in James today. He's going to talk about conduct. He's going to talk about skill in life, what the Bible calls wisdom. Now, where are we in the book of James? So we just spent this passage last week looking at the power of our words to show our hearts. Now, James takes us from our words to our conduct, our behavior. Last week we saw, he starts out this, look, don't appoint yourself as an expert. Don't proclaim yourself to be a master, to be a teacher, and then start judging others, for God judges that very harshly. And then our, word, our hearts leak out through our mouths in that situation, and we cause division. We're, we're judging others. This week, <clears throat> he's going to dig in more to the motivation of our hearts, why it is that we tend to be so judgmental towards others. As I want to tell you up front, it's going to be rough. It's going to be rough because James' concern is for vile and ugly, his words, not mine, in the church. He's not harping on the immorality and stuff out there. That's fine. We do that a lot. No, James is talking about in the church. Why are we vile to each other? Why do we show so much ugly? So if you're here today, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you're watching online and wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're going to get to see the Bible owning the truth that you probably pick up on quickly. Christians can be judgmental, and then the Bible is going to critique us for it. So with that uh, rather enigmatic <laughs> introduction, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word as together we look at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. This is God's Word. <clears throat> Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
This is God's word. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you this morning standing before a text that is hard. Lord, we ask that even from the very beginning, you would help us to cast aside our legalistic hearts that assume we have to perform for you. We pray that you would keep us from hearing, do better, try harder, shape up. And instead, we would be convicted. And in that convicted conviction, we would flee to Jesus Christ alone. Now, Father, would you do this by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So the point of this text today is this, is that how, how we get along with others, especially in the church, demonstrates if we have saving faith or not. Our ability to get along with others demonstrates if we have saving faith. That gets us to our theme for today, which is this, kind of wanting to rotate everything around this, is this. Playing nicely with others demonstrates knowing Jesus. It sounds so simple, but as James is going to show us, it's quite difficult. So the, the question, the setup is, what James starts out with in, in context is this. Which one of you still wants to claim, as you did in verse 1, to be a wise master, to be an expert, to be a teacher. And after 12 verses of showing them why that's wrong, unfortunately it looks like it didn't take because he still has to start showing people you're not as wise as you think you are. He has to jump in with what I'm calling a monster's ball. Okay, why am I calling it that? Quick context. So way back in June, because we took, we took July off, way back in June, at the end of chapter 2, verse 26, James said, separating works and faith is just as unnatural as separating the body and the spirit. And so we use that as an example. Say, so, okay, well, let, let's, what does that actually look like? Well, what's a spirit with no body? Well, that's a ghost. And what's a, what's a body with no spirit? Well, that's a zombie. And they're both unnatural. They're both monstrous. And we don't like those. And so James is saying, look, don't be a ghost who's all faith and no works. And don't be a zombie who's all works and no faith. Those kind of monsters in the church scare people. And now he's really harping on that now. He wants us to get to these monsters in the church are doing bad things. So he gives us this monstrous description in verse 14. Let's look at verse 14 together. What does he say? He says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. If your works and your words demonstrate harsh, rivalrous pride, don't lie to yourself and tell yourself, I'm a great Christian. I'm an expert. I'm a master. I got this, as the people in verse 1 did. So he uses this phrase, bitter jealousy. It's also used of the idea of a harsh rivalry. That's a really key idea. This is a harsh rivalry. Because those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, the Bible tells us, we're united to him by faith. So that what's true of Jesus is true of us. But there's more. Because we're all united to Jesus... We're united to each other. That's why we're brothers and sisters in Jesus. We're a family in Jesus. And the person with this harsh rivalry, rivalry looks at this and says, no, I'm in contest with others in the church. You're my adversaries. We have a rivalry. I have to be better than you. I mean, think about all the different areas 
in church where we have liberty. All the areas of taste and preference, not command, where we have liberty, where the New Testament gives us freedom. I mean, the easy, the low-hanging fruit of these are what? Uh, what? What do you wear? What do you drink? How do you consume pop culture if you consume pop culture? What styles of music should you sing? What translation should you use? All of those areas where we have liberty, this person rejects liberty in all of that and demands conformity to their tastes. This, he actually uses a word here in this verse to help us get it that means electioneering for office. Doing whatever it takes to put yourself forward. Isn't that interesting? I mean, here's a text written 2,000 years ago based on texts that are over a thousand years old at the time talking about how in ancient Athens they hated politicians who weren't in it for the people but in it for themselves. I don't know, you know, C.S. Lewis said that we have this thing called chronological snobbery where we tend to think that we're the most sophisticated people ever and that everybody else before us was kind of just, you know, dumb. Isn't it nice to know that actually there are philosophical arguments about the nature of bad politicians 2,500 years ago? and that people in the Bible 2,000 years ago use that to help us understand what's going on. None of us like people who are just in it to win, in it for themselves, and don't actually want to serve others, whether it's a politician running for office who you don't believe, or it's a person in church. See, and that gives us a clue what's going on here. This person with selfish rivalry doesn't actually believe the gospel. They're not resting in Jesus for their sense of worth and value, so they have to create worth and value for themselves. I mean, we all want to feel valuable. We all want to feel worthy. And so often what happens is this person has to do it by appearing better than others, by tearing them down. And often in church, they then surround themselves by like-minded people, and you end up with factions, which is where James is going to go next week. See, James says these people are not wise in Jesus, but they think they are, so they boast about being really godly. Like a victor over a defeated foe trash-talking, they lie to themselves because it's not true. They're monsters who do not demonstrate their faith. Well, boys and girls, we've been talking about monsters and politicians and stuff. I want to make sure you're still tracking with Pastor Sean here. So let's pull out page 10. And boys and girls, you look at the bottom of page 10. You have your own version there. Let's look at verse 14 of your version. It says this. It says, church monsters are mean and selfish, even as they lie by bragging about their wisdom. Boys and girls, do you know anybody like that? Who, when, when parents or adults or teachers are around, they're really nice. They are very well behaved. But then... As soon as those adults leave, they're monsters, and you don't like them. Yeah, mom, mom and dad know those people too. Or maybe grandparents in the room, remember Eddie Haskell? Remember that guy? Yeah, we don't like that guy. James says, don't be that guy. See, he actually says straight up, that is not godly living. And if you think it is, you're not godly. In verse 15, he even goes so far as to say, you, when you do that, you're just like those who do not know Jesus. Now, I want to pause right there because what he is not saying, so I want to make sure you're not hearing it, he's not saying, man, y'all judgmental Christians, you're just as evil and nasty as those non-Christians out there. Okay, that's an us versus them kind of thing that is not found in the New Testament. That's not what James is saying. And if in your personal reading of Scripture you start to see us versus them, you're putting that into the text. You're not reading that out of the text. What James is he's saying is this. He's saying, y'all claim to know Jesus, 
So you have resources in Jesus that they don't have. So why are you acting like them? See, Jesus commissioned us to be tellers of his story, inviting sinners to receive his resources. And if we in church world miss that truth, we'll be braggers about ourselves and judges of others, especially those outside the church. Again, here's how we put it for the boys and girls. Let's look at their verse 15. James basically says this, selfish bragging is not from God. That is monster wisdom from hell. That's pretty harsh, isn't it, boys and girls? Anything from hell is not good, right? There's a famous Christian um, teacher from Florida, famous in our world, and he has a super deep, rich voice, and he always says, that is a lie from the pit of hell, and it smells like smoke. That's what James is saying here. And then he goes on and tells us in verse 16, look at the rotten fruit that such hellish wisdom brings. Let's look at verse 16 together. He says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So jealousy and ambition are back, and now we've, and they produce instability and disorder. Now, you know, we don't really talk this way. I was trying to figure out how to help you understand this. I, I thought maybe if you have young kids and like, you, you know, Thomas the Tank Engine, what does Sir Topham Hatt, you know, who's supposed to be Winston Churchill, what does Sir Topham Hatt always say? Right, you have caused confusion and delay, which is apparently really bad. And those of you who haven't watched Thomas the Tank Engine, you're like, whoosh, right? So here, hear this. Okay, I want you to think about the most significant relationship you have. If you're married, hopefully it's your spouse. If it's not, um, come talk to me. Um, if, okay, <laughs> if you're single, or not married yet, hopefully you have a dear friend that you can share your heart with and do, and do life together. I want you to think of that person right now. And it's tomorrow morning, it's nine o'clock, and if you're not retired, you're either sitting in your cubicle at home that you've set up, or you actually get to go back to work and you're sitting there. Or if you're not retired, maybe you're on the golf course, you're doing your project for the day. Whatever it is, you are separated from this significant person for a chunk of time per normal schedule. And you get this text from them. I'm so mad. I'm so hurt. I don't want to see you don't talk to me. And then they block you. What's your mental state the rest of the day until you get to see them? It's disorder and instability. It's what James says here. That's what he wants you to feel right now. Tumult, disturbance, confusion. James says a bunch of church folk in that state are put that way by jealousy and judging, and it makes the church gross, vile, worthless. Who wants to be part of a church like that? See, that is not the community God intends through the gospel. And if we are that kind of community, we either have not truly encountered the gospel or we've rejected it. Because as life has squeezed us, it's not gospel that's coming out. You know, none of us like it when we're wronged, when we're maligned, slandered, treated poorly, thought ill of. Not, n- none of us like that. And when that happens to us, our first reaction so often, even in church world, let's be candid, what is it? It's to push back. It's to fight back. It's to make them hurt, to respond in kind, right? And when unchurched people see Christians being just as argumentative, just as petty, just as anxious 
to boast and defend their rights as everybody else. It does not look to unbelievers as if the gospel is actually that big of a deal, is what James is getting at here. James would ask us, and this is hard, James would ask us, he would say, Christian, why not be wronged? Those who the New Testament calls servants of Christ, we translate it that way because the, the literal slaves of Christ, we don't, that makes us uncomfortable. It's slaves. Slaves, well, exactly what rights do you have that you're anxious to defend? Slaves of Jesus? Why are you anxious to defend your rights? Followers of the mocked and murdered Jesus, why not let yourself be spoken evil of? Why not suffer? Or to use his vocabulary in verse 14, do you have to ambitiously protect yourself? Do you have to electioneer for your self-worth? See, often we church folk, we react to the selfishness of others with earthly wisdom, James says. Quick to demand our rights, quick to demand fair treatment. And we forget they mocked and murdered our Savior and Jesus told us, oh, they're going to come and do the same thing after my, to my followers too. We forget that Paul told us to respect, pray for, and obey the government from a nasty, rotting prison pit in Ephesus that you can go to today and see. And he was in there on death row for the crime of being a Christian. See, we, when we forget all that, instead of being the body of Christ, we turn into a monstrous ball. But there's another way. There's another way that James shows us here, and it's, it's, it's called, it's a beautiful life. So way back at the beginning in verse 13, James gives us the secret ingredient. Let's look at the second half of verse 13. What does he tell us? He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I want to zoom in on those three words real quick there. Good, conduct, and meekness. So first of all, good. The word good is used so many times in the New Testament in an extra biblical language, you can't even count it. And this is not it. I don't know why translators do this. This is not the word for good. The word for good is Agatha, where we get the name, like, you know, Agatha Christie. That, 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 her name means good, right? This is a different word. This is the word that's most often used for beautiful, attractive, pretty. So he, so he doesn't say good. He says by our beautiful conduct. Okay, well, what's conduct? This is a word that people struggle with. Sometimes it's a behavior. Sometimes it's a manner of life. If you're a King James fan, you have the King James version in front of you, it's the word conversation. I don't know about you. Conversation and conduct, um, how are those the same thing? How can one word be that same thing? It, it's weird. So what we have to do in situations like this is we have to go outside of the Bible to see how the rest of the culture at the time used this. So I want, I want to give you an example so you, you follow me here, okay? This is class participation time. You ready? How many of you, you don't have to, just you have to be able to, can you define the word simile? Raise your hand if you can define simile. Remember this? Way back elementary school, English, I know everybody's like, mm, I don't know where he's going, so I'm not going to lift my hand very high. Right, okay, a simile. It's a comparison using like or as. He, like or as. Man, he's quick like a bunny. He's as smart as a fox. That's a simile. Now, Y'all are just regular people. A couple of you might be English scholars. A couple of you might be like poetry buffs. But in general, you're just an average person, but you know what this particular linguistic technique is called, right? 
So too, the ancient Romans in a non-visual culture, they were really into texts. The public reading together of texts was a big deal. People got together who could not read and they would hear things read. They loved to hear poetry out loud. And the reason I'm telling you this is what James does is he grabs an actual technical term like simile from the world of poetry and he says, do this. And that technical term basically means this. The word conduct actually is a term that means you change around the word order for emphasis. Like for instance, I called this subpoint a beautiful life. If I had called it a life beautiful, that hit your ears different, wouldn't it? And that hit your heart different, wouldn't it? That's what this that's what this word means. It's that technique. And I know what you're doing. You're sitting right now going, that's just super, Sean. Thanks for telling me that, <laughs> right? Here's why it matters. The way it would have hit the ears of the original readers, the original Christians, they would catch this, that Christians are to be enigmatic in our life. Our conduct should be this so that our works and our actions are twisted in a way that they come off completely unexpected to make a difference. And that difference is the demonstration of meek wisdom. We should be enigmatic in our words and actions, James says, and it should be beautiful. So we got beautiful, so we should have this beautiful difference that is what meekness. Okay, meek, such a churchy word. How many of you have used the word meek in conversation in the last 90 days? Right? And we don't know what it means. It rhymes with weak, so we assume it means weak. So Jesus says the meek shall inherit the earth, and we think of the lowly, weak people, right? No, it doesn't mean that. It means like controlled power, but there's a specific usage here. Again, I don't know why James is like some supposedly some uneducated Hebrew guy. He uses like some major intense Roman vocabulary here. He uses a different word for meek. He actually goes to the world of politics again, and he grabs a word that they used to describe their political class. It basically meant, don't be a jerk. That's what it means. You can look it up. It meant be Be mild. Be easy to get along with. And the, the famous Roman political philosopher Plutarch, you can Google this, he said this is an essential quality for the governing class. And if they don't have this, Rome won't work. So James grabs that. And what does he say? Put this all together. What does this mean? The meekness of wisdom. The secret sauce. What is it? It assumes that others will make us upset and it's the enigmatic mildness of Christians in such a circumstance which demonstrates biblical faith. Say that again. It assumes people are going to make us upset. Hallelujah, because that happens to me a lot. And what God's wisdom does when life squeezes you like that, the gospel empowers you to react differently than expected with a mildness. And it's beautiful. And that's what he says godliness is. It's countercultural and weird, then and today. And that difference, according to James, is a beautiful thing. It's a thing of beauty. And he helps us see how beautiful it is in verse 17. Let's look at verse 17. How beautiful is this? Well, the wisdom from above is pure and then peaceable. It's gentle. It's open to reason. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and sincere. Now, I'm not going to go through an intense word study on all those like I just did. We'd be here forever. I can just tell you right now, all those words mean pretty much what you think they mean, okay? <laughs> it's a good thing. You want to be part of a community like that, right? The other community was vile and worthless. This community is all this. I'll take that. Thank you very much. 
And here's what's great about this. Remember, James is most likely the earliest book in the New Testament. Jimbo here is writing about his older brother like 20 to 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's amazing if you look, this little verse 17 is actually pretty much a good summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So verse 17 might be actually the earliest written summary of the Sermon on the Mount. What's really great is another book comes out 10, 15 years in the future in which the Apostle Paul puts together this thing called the Fruit of the Spirit, and it sounds like pretty much the same thing. So here you have this beautiful testimony across the New Testament. Jesus, James, and Paul saying, when life squeezes Christians, this is what comes out. And if this isn't what comes out, there's not Christ there. Now, when you hear me say that, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. This is a key point. These are not characteristics Christians strive toward. These are aspects of the new life that is already put in you. Those who have been born again will live this out when Jesus has life squeeze you. See, what that means is that this list shows us not something to strive for, but it makes us a community of continual repentance, asking for forgiveness because we don't do that. And if you're busy repenting of not doing this, you don't have time to judge others. And that's the key difference. See, we need God's wisdom in us to be this kind of people. All of that, what I just said, is the good conduct from verse 13, this beautiful, unexpected mildness of Christians. So to the answer to what does it mean to have God's wisdom, it's the beautiful difference we demonstrate in our mildness when people do things that just make you angry. To be beautifully different is to be a poet of Jesus, as James says in chapter 2. I want to kind of zoom in just real quickly on this idea of beauty, because we don't use the word beauty like that. When I say the word beauty, you think pretty, you think attractive, you think something almost sensual. Beauty is such a deeper quality than that. Uh, The 1700s pastor, Jonathan Edwards, you may have heard of him. He he was like messed up by this idea of God's beauty. And a a book on him by Dane Ortland captures this beautiful quote from Edwards about this. It's on the the, uh, meditative quotes in the front of your bulletin. We also have it on a slide. Here's what he says. He says, the supreme instance of divine beauty being reflected in creation is not in the sun or the Grand Canyon or a nightingale's song, but in a Christian. To be a Christian is to be a little, frail, finite, morally faltering picture of the beauty of God. That's what James is saying here. Our lives reflect the beauty of God. When we reflect God's beauty, we are walking in the wisdom from above. It's a beautiful life. And when Christians portray that beautiful life, it creates a peaceful church. Look with me at verse 18. What does James says the result of this is? It's a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The wisdom of God in the church is observable. You can see it. It's the lives of Christians in community make a community of peace. It's a life of beauty reflecting God's beauty. That's what it means to be godly. Isn't that totally different from what we normally think of when we use the word godly? And she's a really godly woman. Is it her life is beautiful what we mean? That's what James would mean. 
Again, Jonathan Edwards, in a, in a sermon from James, he's grappling with this idea of beauty, and he's grappling with this idea that no one can see God and live. Okay, if you're visiting or you're not quite versed in the Old Testament, there's this great scene in the Old Testament where Moses is with God and something amazing has happened. And Moses, they had this incredible moment of, of intimacy, for lack of a better word. And Moses is like, I, I want to see your glory. And God's like, love you. You can't because it'd kill you. You can't see my glory and live. And so there's this, this, there's this whole thing in the Bible about you can't truly see God unadulterated and live. And what we do is in our monster thinking, we immediately assume well, it's because God's so big and holy and terrible and we're not and we just die. But Edwards, using a verse from James and others, he, he, he's thinking about this and he says, you know, I think we got this wrong. He says, the fact is, again, this is mean old Jonathan Edwards. You know, remember back when you had to read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? That guy. Here's what he says. He says, God is so beautiful the joy which would erupt from within us at a mere glimpse of his beauty would destroy us. Isn't that an incredible thought? And yet that beauty is what the church of Jesus Christ, grounded in the gospel, is meant to reflect into the world. See, God said, I want to give my people life, but my beauty would kill them, so I'll make something just as beautiful that can bring them life for me. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Do our friends, do our, do our communities think the church is beautiful like that? Is that what we're known for? It should be because verse 18 tells us that the people of God living out the wisdom of God through a beautiful life creates such a place of harmony and peace. So a beautiful church and these beautiful Christians. And so here's where I'm supposed to tell you, well, get beautiful. Go on a diet. Make yourself pretty. Try harder. Exert yourself. No. Jesus, excuse me, James commends to us wisdom from above because he's reminding us that wisdom came down in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is revealed in the Bible as both the wisdom and the beauty of God. He did live this beautiful life. And you, remember we said earlier, united by, to Jesus by faith, What's true of him is true of you. So in Jesus, you're beautiful too. And even as those words hit your ears, so does your guilt. So does your shame. So does your embarrassing secrets, your internet history. They whisper in your ear, not you. You're too ugly. You're too much of a failure. God could never see you as beautiful. See, but in the gospel, Jesus makes us beautiful. He takes ugly things and makes us beautiful. And then he empowers us by his spirit to remain in that beauty. And in spite of that truth, in spite of that amazing gospel, many of us cannot shake off this earthly selfishness, can we? How can we be free of the selfishness and jealousy, which we know is in us? Well, a couple things. One, if you're a Christian here today, you would call yourself a Christian, a struggle with selfish ambition, it means that we don't actually believe our status as righteous, beloved, accepted children of God. We're still trying to earn it instead of resting in the grace that gives it to us as a gift. And if that resonates with you, let me quote our Savior, repent and believe the gospel. Rest in the beauty that God gives you in Jesus instead of trying to earn it. 
If you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or maybe you're in conversation with your non-Christian neighbors, how, how do you take this to them? Well, you know, our culture gives you no other option but to be selfish and to strive against others. Without a relationship to the Creator, you have to save yourself, and you do that by being better than others. And it makes you envious, makes you ambitious, makes you competitive, makes you afraid. But there's a better way, a more beautiful life with harmony with others because you're in harmony with God. Don't you want that? Even wanting that to be true is a great place to start. God can use that. God can work with that. So if any of that resonates with you, I would just tell you this. Cast off everything you've called religion, everything you think you have to do to be a Christian, all the stuff you think Christianity is, just cast it all away and just place your simple childlike faith and trust in Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. And he'll make you beautiful. And he'll help you feel it. Let's pray together. A gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, the message of your gospel is too good. We just simply don't believe that you could be that gracious to people like us. The idea that we could be beautiful is laughable because we see how desperately ugly we are. Lord, would you help us to believe that it was while we were sinners you sent your son, that it was while we were rebels you made reconciliation. And as while we were dead, you brought us to life. Lord, for those of us who've confessed faith in Jesus, would you help us to believe it? And Lord, when life squeezes us and we don't respond as Christ would, would you draw us quickly to repentance instead of to shame? Would you drive us deeper into the cross? And Lord, we pray for those today longing to be better, longing for a better community, that you would draw them to yourself that as you called Lazarus from the grave, you would call them to new life in Jesus. You would build your kingdom. We pray all this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.